Good afternoon, everyone. For uh, those of you who weren't here this morning, I know some of people have come just for this afternoon that weren't able to come for the morning meeting. I'll give just a tiny bit of a uh, basis of what we're doing here today. The uh, present presentation we're dealing with today is the creation of animal life. Is it an accident or is it a design of God? And I've been going through various different uh, animal groups, woodpeckers and, and four-eyed fish and sand grouse and other, some of the odd creatures that we find on this planet with us, and showing how their unique specializations could never have happened by blind chance, how they had to have been created by God in the way that they needed to survive and thrive in whatever habitat they happened to live in. And so this whole point is to show that the concept of blind chance creating the world around us is a myth. A book came out in the 1980s called The Blind Watchmaker, and it stated that all life everywhere would be the inevitable result of evolution, that the infinite complexity and the infinite diversity we see of animal life had to have been evolved through the processes of random chance and random forces. And so this presentation asks the question, is that the real answer to this question? Or is it much simpler and much more logical to believe that God created and that is why we see the wonderful diversity we see around us. And as we go through this, we will continue in this vein of showing various different groups of animals and showing various ways that they have the specializations that they need to survive. We've looked at a variety of uh, animal life so far, and we're now going to continue with that from that point forward to uh, see some of the wonders of God's created world. Now, also, we're going to, if we uh, want to see these the best, the lights should probably be out because uh, the darker is better for this presentation. So uh, if you, someone wants to get that, if possible, and we will go ahead and get started here. <clears throat> now, as I told you, those who uh, are going to be here at the uh, beginning get to find out about the brush jerky, and everyone who comes late will miss out. So you're the lucky ones. Now, when we look at bird eggs and look at the nests that uh, are set up by most birds, we find a group of eggs laid by a mother bird in a uh, built nest, and then the eggs are sat upon and guarded by whatever species of bird that uh, laid them. That's the normal method of, of raising young. But there are, in fact, other ways to do it and other ways in which the natural world raises their offspring. One of the strangest is found in Australia and New Guinea with the brush turkey. Brush turkeys are often around geothermal areas where the ground is heated by underground sources, and so they just dig in the sand, lay their eggs, and the uh, sand works as a natural incubator to warm up the eggs and keep them at just the right temperature so that they can hatch. Now, if they don't have geothermal areas, however, they have to do it themselves. And so the scrub turkeys, the male, will build a large mound of debris of vegetation into a huge pile. He'll scrape up all the leaves and sticks and plant material that he can find, scrape it up into a pile, and then it will act like a giant compost heap. It will begin to ferment, it will begin to rot, and in that process create heat, and in that process keep the eggs warm that are laid inside that nest. Now, the male is the one who guards the nest. The female has nothing to do with it. Once she comes and lays a giant egg down inside the egg, she wanders off and has nothing more to do with her offspring whatsoever. And the male is the one who takes care of them. He does not, however, keep it warm by nesting on it like a regular bird because that would never, you know, it's not necessary for him to do that with the rotting vegetation. He waits for several females as they come along, lay their eggs until he has quite a few eggs in the nest. And at that point, then he is able to uh, raise his young without uh, any interference from the uh, female. 
Now he wants to make very sure that he takes uh, good care of his babies because that's his offspring, that's the next generation. He wants to do everything in his power to protect them from harm and he wants to let nothing come uh, and attack his eggs and nothing disturb his eggs. And so he's a very diligent parent. And so what he will do is he will come to the nest and he spends all the daylight hours every day doing this when he's not eating. He will come to the nest and he will scrape off the top vegetation and then he will stick his tongue into the vegetation and with his tongue he measures the exact temperature inside the nest. He has a living thermometer for a tongue that allows him to know exactly what the temperature is inside. If it's too warm, then he scrapes off vegetation so it can cool off. If it's too cold, he'll add more vegetation onto the pile. In this way, he's constantly adding and removing vegetation all day long for about eight months of the year as he goes through the entire breeding season because uh, there's constantly new females coming and constantly new eggs being laid and goes through this unending process where he's laying all these, uh, taking care of all these young. Now, time comes and the eggs hatch underground under this mound and they have to struggle after they've broken through the shell up through the surface of this material till they break through to the top and are then able to free themselves and go about their business. The first thing that happens when these young break from their, she- their, their mound is their father drives them away. Now, he wants nothing to disturb his nest. He wants nothing to disturb his young. And these weird creatures coming up out of it have no place there. And so he makes sure to drive them off immediately and get rid of them so that they won't disturb his young. He's a very devoted father, even though he doesn't know what he's doing. And so at that point, they are now shuffled off into the woods on their own without any parental guidance of any kind. And from that day forward, they are totally on their own without any training whatsoever. But don't worry, because they know everything they need to survive. They know how to find food. They know how to avoid predators. They know how to find shelter. They know how to do everything they need to put into their brain by God's wonderful power. And without any parental guidance, they go about their business. Aphids are very familiar to every gardener who has plants in the backyards, and these guys cover your plant material, and they will suck them dry if you're not uh, paying very close attention to them, and they are very uh, abundant once they get started. Each one will specialize in a different kind of plant. Each one will find a different species that it is uh, right for, and it will suck that uh, juices dry. Now, all they eat are plant juices. They don't eat anything else. They don't have a a varied diet. They don't have a balanced diet at all. They eat nothing but plant juices. And that gives them a lot of material, but not a lot of variety of material. And they, like all other animals, need a balanced diet, just like you and I do. And so how in the world do they have this lack made up in their life? Well, fortunately for them, inside the bodies of all the aphids are microscopic bacteria inside every cell of their body. This microscopic bacteria takes the excess sap that they have an abundance of, and then it will begin to utilize it for its own purposes as nourishment for the bacteria. It will use it to nourish itself. In the process, the bacteria is giving off waste products. Those waste products are exactly what the aphids need to supplement their diet and balance their diet to the point where they will be healthy. And so this unique partnership is taking place where the aphids cannot survive without the bacteria, and of course the bacteria cannot survive without the aphids. And so you have this wonderful partnership. Now this is a problem for evolutionary theory because you had two species that had to make a joint partnership at some point in evolutionary history. Now without either one, neither can survive. So how did they get to the point where they decided to join together and work together and get, make this partnership work? 
It is a very difficult problem because one is going to go extinct before the other one comes along, and they're not going to be both in the right position at the right time to have this unique partnership. And so it is a very specialized way of getting along. Termites are very familiar to people because they gnaw on people's houses and old wood and various things like that and cause a lot of damage. Now, in the temperate parts of the world, that's what they do. They, they specialize in eating wood. And again, you have the same problem, however. These guys cannot digest the food that they're eating. Wood is a very difficult substance to digest, and they cannot digest it themselves. And again, they have another partnership where inside their uh, gut are organisms that actually can digest the wood and do it for them and allow them to be able to exist on the wood that they're eating. And so it's a very, again, a unique partnership. How it came about, evolutionary scientists can't tell you. Here we see a group of reproductive termites after they come to the point where they're ready to swarm. They actually have wings. They fly to a new area and set up a new uh, spot. Most of the ones that stay behind are workers. These are the pale ones in this picture. The ones that are totally uh, white like this, those are the worker termites. They do all the building of the colony. They do all of the maintenance, all that sort of thing, the tending of the other termites. These guys in the center are called the uh, soldiers because their job is to guard the termite colony from any attack and danger. They have, in this case, pincers for a mouth that they can squeeze and, and bite anything that is attacking them. There are other kinds that have the ability to actually squirt glue from their heads. They have a nozzle for a head that can squirt glue at their attackers and gum up whatever is bothering them. It is a very unique way of defending themselves. Here again is a group of reproductive ones that are uh, in the process of swarming. This one I found up in Oregon just as they were coming up out of their hole. Thousands and thousands were coming out, and within 20 minutes they were all gone. And the holes were being sealed up from below by the ones remaining behind. It was a very lucky chance to run under this group. So again, you have these uh, termites who are taking care of their uh, colony and each one doing their sp specified job. In the tropical parts of the world, you have a completely different way of getting along with termites. These guys down there are actually not eating wood, but eating a fungus. Now, they, this is a specialized type of fungus that each termite has its own species that they eat, and they grow their own fungus in their termite mounds. So they have to have a termite mound that is going to protect them and also make sure that the temperature, humidity, moisture, everything inside the termite mound is exactly at the right conditions for the fungus to grow. And so we have extremely uh, elaborate mounds that these guys will build that <clears throat> will make them uh, possible for them to continue to survive as a colony. If uh, something breaks into it, they will have to repair the breach and before the air pressure and uh, temperature changes and all that sort of thing. And so they have a very much uh, to keep it going exactly at the right temperature. In rainforests, they have umbrellas that they build over their uh, termite mounds to shed the rain. In desert areas, they have chimneys, like you can see here, that actually excess, uh, funnel the excess heat from their termite mounds so it doesn't overheat. And so there are very elaborate structures that these guys will work on. In Namibia is the most involved type of a termite mound ever found that actually, in order to deal with the extreme heat, has underground veins down here that actually are giving off cool air, like its own air conditioning system. And the, and the hot air is forced out the chimneys, and then the nest is at the perfect temperature, and where the other fungus is able to grow is at the perfect temperature inside these uh, extremely uh, sophisticated architectural accomplishments. Now, all these guys are basically tiny one-fourth-inch creatures, totally blind, wandering around a colony with a pellet of mud and know exactly what to do with that pellet of mud to keep their colony working properly. How in the world can sophistication of this level be due to blind random chance?
In Australia, we have a completely different type of termite called the magnetic termite that build these large tombstone-like mounds, completely flattened. They build them in rows across the grasslands of Australia. And they were called magnetic termites because the mounds were always in a north-to-south axis, and it was assumed they were building it based on magnetic alignment. But in fact, it was not based on uh, magnetics at all. It was based totally on sun and temperature because when you have the sun rising up in the morning, it will shine upon the flat face of the termite mound, warm it up early so that they can get an early start on the day. As the sun rises, it gets very hot in Australia, and so they don't want it to be overheated. And when the sun is directly overhead, it's shining on the minimum part uh, possible of the uh, termite mound, and that allows it to not overheat. And then as the sun sits, sets again, it allows it to keep it warm a little bit longer than it would have if it not had that flat face facing the sun going down in the rest of the day. And so these are not based on magnetics, but are based on solar warmth and patterns like that, which is just as amazing as anything else, and another testament to the amazing ability of animals to have exactly what they need. And so we have a tiny little creature wandering around with no guidance other than itself, and you have a uh, sophisticated communication system based on chemical receptions and based on the ability of these guys to smell different uh, parts of their colony, and this will allow them to um, communicate using nothing but chemicals and senses and that sort of thing. And again, one of the most amazing, amazing creatures on our planet that uh, is a tiny little creature totally blind. Walruses are the clam eaters of the far north. These guys will uh, sit in the icy, cold Arctic water, swimming around. They have these enormous tusks with which, which they use to pull themselves out onto the land or bicker amongst their rivals or scratch that hard-to-reach spot on the back of their uh, body. And uh, when it, they're hungry, they dive down up to 300 feet underneath the water's surface looking for clams. They come down to the bottom of the, of the ocean surface, and there they will root around amongst the uh, uh, seafloor with their extremely uh, sensitive whiskers, and they're able to feel what's under the mud that way. And then they pull out a clam, and they will put it into their mouth, and then they will actually suck the meat right out of their shell and then spit out the shell. Their mouth is that strong that they're able to just uh, vacuum it out. It's a, a very amazing ability. Now, they will come onto land whenever they can to uh, rest and to sleep and to digest their meals. But uh, if there's no land available, they'll find an iceberg, and that will be just as good for them. They have no problem with that. Now, when they first come out of the water, they are very pale-colored because at that point, all the, blood cell, all the blood vessels in their body are retracted from the outer parts of their skin so that their heat from their body is not lost to the icy cold water of the Arctic. They have extremely thick blubber, and this protects them from the ice water. But when they come out on the land, they want to warm up as quickly as possible. So at that point, they will actually have the blood vessels expand out to the limits of their skin so that it can soak up the sunlight, warm up their body very quickly, and in that way make sure that they are able to function at peak efficiencies as they digest their food. And so that you can always tell a walrus how long he's been out of the water based on his color because it will be completely different based on how long he's been out. And so again, you have these walruses swimming around in the north. Now that when the time comes for them to sleep, sometimes they're way too far away from land and they can't find an iceberg and whatnot, and so they're going to have to sleep in the water. Now, that is a problem for an air-breathing animal because these are not like a whale that can dive underwater and breathe underwater. These are air-breathing creatures, and so you have to have a way that these guys can breathe uh, without and still be asleep. And so, unlike any other sea mammal in the entire world, they have a set of uh, sacs inside their neck 
and they're able to blow up that uh, sac using air, just like inflating a uh, life preserver ring. And then at that point, they're able to blow it up to the point where it'll keep their head above the water's surface. They can go to sleep without any worries because their head will be kept permanently above the waves in the water, and then they can sleep until they wake up again and deflate their sacks and go about their business. It is totally unique to have an inbuilt life preserver built into their body, an absolutely an, an incredible miracle of design. And so again, you have a unique set of attributes in this walrus group that no other mammal has anywhere in the world, and it is totally specialized to them, and no other creature in the world can be shown to, as an evolving creature moving step by step to this final form, because there is nothing like them. Microscopic life. Ask any evolutionist where life on Earth began, and he will tell you immediately that the first animal life to form on this planet, and plant life as well, was a single cell formed in the world's oceans by forces beyond our ability to describe. And from that single cell, the simple cell, all life on Earth developed from that point forward. It became more and more complex and more and more developed until we finally have everything that we see around us on this planet. That's the way evolutionary uh, theory states. So we look around and we find a lot of one-celled creatures. We find like about eight or ten different major types of one-celled creatures that are uh, the supposed originators. So you ask that evolutionist then, which of these one-celled creatures is the original life form from which all life evolved? And he will tell you none of them because they're all too complicated and sophisticated to be the original form of life. One-celled life is actually not simple at all. It is actually far more complicated than we've ever dreamed about before. One-celled life has to do everything that it needs to do in one cell. When we look at a person, when we look at an elephant, when we look at a whale, when we look at a plant, we're looking at thousands and millions of cells, each cell specialized to do a different form of duty. Um, some cells are your skin cells protecting your body. Some are your digestive cells in your, digesting your food. Some are nerve cells carrying electrical impulses. Each cell has a job to do, and each cell is specialized to do that particular function. And when they all work together, you have a single creature. Single cell life forms don't have that advantage. They can't have various different aspects of their body doing different parts as each cell doing its own thing. A single cell life form has to do everything possible in its one cell. It has to be able to reproduce. It has to be able to move about. It has to be able to collect food. It has to be able to digest food. It has to be able to avoid predators and defend itself. And so everything in a single cell is exactly far more complicated than anything in a multi-cell creature because it's all concentrated into one cell. And so that is one of the reasons why one-celled creatures are not simple and how they could never have just evolved as a life form to start things off because they are far too complicated to just spring into being. The single cell has turned out to be one of the greatest weaknesses of evolutionary theory that we've ever found because the more we study them, the more complicated we find them out to be. And that becomes extremely dangerous to evolutionary theory. Even such a simple creature as the amoeba is found out to be way too complicated to be the originator of, of life on Earth. This little creature is called a tardigrade, a water bear. It has eight legs and it is found in any moist environment, any swamp, any marsh, that sort of thing where you can find little uh, plant cells and stuff like that for him to feed on. He is 0.05 inches long. They are all over the place, but hardly anyone ever sees them until you put something under a microscope and then you might find one of them. 
They live in marshes. Now, marshes have a tendency to go dry when conditions are uh, right, and all the water will disappear. And at that point, if you're a water creature that needs to live in the water, you're out of luck. But a water bear survives the drought. It desiccates with the drought. It loses all the water in its tissues and goes into a state of hibernation. And then when the water comes back, it will then revive, rehydrate, and go about its business as if nothing happened. It can stay in a dormant state, completely desiccated without any water for up to seven years. If you take a water bear and you put him into a vacuum and then you bring him back out, he will still be alive. If you expose him to lethal levels of radiation that would kill any of us and bring him back out, he will still be alive. If you freeze down a tardigrade till he, to minus 458 degrees below zero and then warm him up, he will still be alive. If you heat up a tardigrade to 303 degrees above zero and then cool him down, he will still be alive. This is the most awesome display of survival of the fittest that I have ever seen in the natural world. And I would recommend all animals ev everywhere to evolve these uh, adaptations as quickly as possible because they by far would be better adapted to life if they could survive conditions like this. And so this little creature is without a doubt one of the hardiest creatures ever found on this planet. Surviving from a difference of minus 458 below to 303 degrees above is a miracle of creation. Sponges are found throughout the world's oceans. These guys are everywhere you look in any sea you want to explore. They are found in a huge variety of colors, sizes, and shapes and forms. Some are vases, some are tubes, some are various containers, some are encrusted across rocks, some are flat, some are bulbous. It is all colors you can imagine. They are one of the commonest animals in the oceans. They are all based upon a colonial system. They are not like an animal like we are familiar with, like a bald eagle or a cat or a dog or anything like that, where we look at a creature and we go, that is one animal. A sponge is actually made up of hundreds of animals, sometimes thousands of animals, working together in, co in cooperation with each other. It is a colonial existence where each cells are doing their own job and doing their own behavior, but working together for the good of the whole. You can actually see sponge cells moving across the sponge if they decide they want to move to a different part of the sponge for some reason. And so they are very complicated in the, in the sense that they are able to work together while each doing individual jobs. Now, sponges, if you break them down by forcing them to go through a sieve until they break down to their actual single-celled basis and you let them swim around in the water as you force them through the sieve, they will actually reassemble themselves back into their original shape. If you take two sponges and break them down to the, through the sieve and get them to the point where they're single cells, those two sponges will reassemble and get to the point where they will reassemble into one sponge made up of the constituent parts of both of the original sponges. And so we have this incredible ability to be broken down to a single cell and reconstitute itself. Now, no higher animal has anything close to that. You can never break any higher animal down to a single cell. And so we have in this what is called a primitive animal some specializations and behaviors and adaptations that even the more advanced animals have no ability to do whatsoever. Sponges are <clears throat> made up of a colony where each is doing a different thing. Some are pulling in water, some are digesting food, some are repelling danger by having a stinging cells or whatnot to repel anything that touches them. This we are looking at are the microscopic uh, inside of a cell. These are called spicules. These are the structural skeleton of a, of, a, uh, of a sponge. These are made up of silicon or lime. Now, 
these are all arranged in a perfectly organized pattern that if it's not arranged in exactly the right structure and way, it's not going to do any good for the sponge. But when it's arranged exactly perfectly, perfectly gives the sponges a structure and organization and strength. An evolutionist has written, the imagination is baffled. How do they coordinate? How could quasi-independent microscopic cells collaborate to secrete a million glassy splinters and construct such an intricate and beautiful lattice? We do not know. Well, evolutionists might not know, but creationists have a pretty good idea. Platypuses are the poster child of evolutionists who want to show how animals evolve from one group of animals to a more advanced group of animals. As in this case, the platypus is supposed to be the advancement from reptiles to mammals. The, uh, there's a picture missing there. That kind of threw me off. Um, and so the, uh, the platypuses lay eggs, and so they are considered to be the link between reptiles and mammals because reptiles lay eggs, mammals do not. And so these are considered to be the most primitive form of mammals still existing on the planet, and so they are considered to be the link that we can see as the most basic, primitive, bottom-level rank mammal that we can find on the planet. They are a marsupial. They dig burrows in the side of the banks where they find uh, their food in Australia, and they have these... Uh, they have these flaps on their webbing on their feet that allow them to swim very well, but that's not very useful when they want to dig because flap webbings, that kind of thing, is not very useful. So they actually have the ability to bend underneath the membrane, fold it underneath, and it'll expose claws on their fingers with which they are able to dig into the bank. And so it's a very unique way of uh, being able to dig like that. Now, of course, they're most famous for their duck bill. They're called the duck bill platypus because it resembles a, a duck's bill. But unlike a duck's bill, which is hard, horny, and very uh, solid, they are, in fact, hollow. These guys have a very sensitive bill. It's full of nerve endings. It's full of uh, electrical sensing apparatus that allows them to sense whatever is in the water around them moving. Now, all life on Earth gives off electrical impulses as it moves. You're doing it right now. All life does it. Very few creatures have the ability to, de to uh, detect this electrical impulses being given off. And so a crayfish is out down in the water. The platypus dives into the water and looks for that food. He closes his eyes. He closes his nostrils. He is totally blind. He is totally, has no ability to smell in the water. And he uses his bill, using the sensory apparatus of the electrical impulse, to home in on the insect and crustacean life that he wants to eat. He's able that way to dig into the rocks and find what he needs even when he can't see it, because he, even if he had his eyes open. And so he uses this incredibly sophisticated way of detecting his prey. In this way, he's able to get all the food he needs, and he's able to uh, uh, get food that most other creatures in that habitat would not be able to do so. Now, platypus males have a very unique adaptation on their back hind foot. It is a spur. It is superficially reminiscent of a chicken spur, which is a very hard, bony object that uh, they use to fight amongst themselves. But unlike that, the spur of a platypus is hollow and has the ability to inject venom. They use it to defend themselves if they are attacked and also to fight against rival males when they are in uh, territorial combat and that sort of thing. And so they have this ability to produce venom. Now, venom is a very costly substance to produce. It takes a lot of bodily resources to produce this thing, and it is considered by evolutionists to be an advanced characteristic of animal life. 
Venomous snakes are considered to be the most evolved snakes on the planet because of their ability to produce venom in their heads and inject it into their prey. And so they are considered the pinnacle of snake evolution. But the platypus, which has the same ability to produce venom, is considered the bottom rung of mammal evolution. Now, does this make any sense? We have here a one-foot-long creature going about his business in the streams of Australia who is considered by evolutionary science to be the most primitive animal mammal on the planet. But when we look at it, we find it is, in fact, as sophisticated and more complicated than most mammal species with its range of behaviors and adaptations. And so, in fact, it is far more complicated than any simple creature that it is being portrayed at. And another example of how evolutionary theory determines what is said about wildlife in the scientific literature, not by what is actually found in the wildlife. Barnacles are found on every coastline, every rocky shore. Wherever you go tide pooling, you will find millions upon millions of barnacles encrusting upon the rocks everywhere you go. These guys are extremely prolific, they will, and they will find every level upon the beach. Different species will adapt to each particular level and find their spot where they are most uh, adapted to live, and they will just cover the rocks in high densities. All barnacles start out by mic with, as microscopic plankton, which dr drift in the uh, world's oceans until they get large enough for them to settle down. The time comes for them to settle, and then they will then find themselves a bare spot on a rock, put their head down on the rock, and glue themselves to the rock, and never move again. They excrete a substance around their body that forms this shell, and it's a very complicated shell. It's not like a limpet or a snail that's just one piece. This is moving parts, shifting, shifting opening, closing. This allows them to get in and out of their, of their shell so that they can feed. It's a very complicated bit that they're exuding around them and getting to the point where they can survive and be protected. They stick their foot out of their shell in order to feed. They put out their one foot and wave it through the water, and the strands will collect all this microscopic plankton, and they will pull the foot back into the water, uh, out of the water into their shell, and collect whatever food has been found on it. In this way, they will collect all the food they need. They will never move again from this spot, and they are, in fact, glued to the rock on their head, standing on their head with their foot sticking out of their shell, collecting food. Is this a way anyone else here would like to spend the rest of their life? Here is one that is uh, inside the shell, and he sticks out his, uh, his, his foot, and he withdraws it. Sticks out his foot, withdraws it. And this way, they do this hundreds of times in the, uh, every time that he's underwater, uh, thousands of times over the, the days, and this way he collects all the food that they need to survive. They, the ones that are underwater that actually you never get to see because they're never exposed long enough are, get very large and actually are uh, giant barnacles that are actually found down there that are actually uh, much larger than the small ones we find on our shoreline. So you have a great range of size uh, of the barnacles that we see on our seashores. There are, in fact, relatives of the barnacles that are found uh, in the deep ocean that have slightly different behavior from the barnacles we find on our shores. These are called goosenecks barnacles, and they are found on drifting uh, logs, drifting, drifting debris, that sort of thing, wherever they can find themselves a spot to glue onto on something floating in the ocean surface. I was once in the Gulf of Alaska, and we were in a boat, and floating by the boat came a TV set completely covered with gooseneck barnacles. They didn't mind what their home was now, uh, had used to be a, a television set and was now a piece of trash. They were totally satisfied with that. And a case could be made that that was actually the most useful function that TV ever served. 
when you take them out of the water, they writhe around because they know they're not supposed to be out of water. They're not like regular barnacles that are exposed to this, uh, to the uh, air every few hours. These are always underwater, and so they get very distressed when they move around. <clears throat> they feed in the same way, however, where you can see these little feet sticking out. The little orange parts are actually their feet, and the black parts are their long goose necks that are actually unprotected by the shell because they don't need, don't have to worry about drying out. The only part that there uh, is covered up are their vital organs at their their head. There are other relatives of barnacles that are even more specialized in their places where, where, where they will live. Here you can see a relative of the barnacles that actually lives on the underside of a crab. It will spend its entire life on the underside of this crab, and it will thereby be protected from moved around, got nourishment, all that sort of thing, unless this crab gets eaten, and then the barnacle's out of luck. But this is definitely the most extreme case of specialization of any barnacle found anywhere. There are relatives of barnacles called cyamids, or whale lice, because they will encrust themselves upon the heads and bodies of whales. This is a southern right whale that you can see the white patches on his head are actually the cyamids. And that is a permanent colony of these creatures that the whales are stuck with their entire lives. They're actually so distinctive that whale researchers will take pictures of these uh, clusters and they'll be able to identify individual whales because no two patterns are exactly the same in each different animal. It doesn't do any harm to the whales, it just lives there and uh, you can see how thick it gets on the top of their snout there, how very uh, thick these colonies will go. In territorial battles, uh, male uh, right whales will actually use it when they're banging their heads around with each other to use to scrape the other male and and, uh, drive them off, so that makes some use of it, but otherwise they're just a passenger ferry service for these creatures. And so we see here in this barnacles and their relatives in one group of animals in the oceans how extreme the diversity is and how one simple formula can be made to fit a whole range of different ecosystems and and habitats and individual spots where they all can uh, be found. And so it's a very interesting way of showing how one family is so diverse in God's creation. The Matamata turtle is a resident of the jungles of South America. It lives in the deep uh, uh, rivers of the Amazon and various places in the jungles, and it will blend in with whatever debris and background um, junk is on the, laying on the river floor. It will sit there amongst the, uh, the, amongst the twigs and branches and leaves. It has growths on its back and flanges on its head and neck that help it to mimic whatever debris is around it. And then it will hold perfectly still, perfectly motionless, waiting for small fish to swim by. When the small fish come along, they are swimming along this debris and they don't even notice when the wood changes to turtle. They don't even realize when the, t- when the leaves are no longer leaves but the back of a uh, predatory turtle. And so at that point, the little fish is in a great deal of danger and they uh, don't re- even realize it because the Matamata turtle will open up his mouth, forming a vacuum, the water will pour in, the fish will come in with it, the mouth will slam shut and that fish will become a meal of the turtle. Here you can see in there a fish that has just been swallowed, green-scaled fish that just got pulled into his mouth there. And so you have these creatures then, they eat their fish and then they become motionless again, waiting for their next prey to come along. When the time comes for them to breathe, they need to be able to get to the surface and they don't want to make much disturbance, so they have an extremely long tube nose that they reach up as slowly as possible till it breaks the surface of the water. They get a deep breath of air, they pull it back down and go back to their motionless weight for the next time a predator, a prey comes along and is ready to be eaten. Now, when we think of flying creatures, 
we normally think of birds and insects. These are the creatures that uh, we normally think of as the ones that are flying around. We don't normally think of mammals as being great flyers. We think of them as great uh, land animals, great sea creatures and whatnot, but not really think of them as these uh, flying creatures. But actually, one-fourth of all mammal species have the ability to fly. Now, this does not include the mammals that have the ability to glide. They do not have the ability to have powered flight. These are the flying squirrels that are actually able to stick out their arms and a flap of skin connects their front leg and their hind leg and it forms a parachute. They leap off into the air, spread their arms, and allow themselves to glide from one spot to another. They cannot fly. They will always go from one spot to a lower spot. But in fact, it is very well controlled. Their flat rudder-like tail allows them to steer themselves very accurately so they get to exactly the tree they want to get to and then they scurry up that tree and jump off and head for the next tree. And this way, they're able to move around in the, in the uh, forest as night. We have two species in North America. They're very small. They're, very, they're nocturnal, so they're not very often seen except when you're really looking for them. There are others found in Asia that are actually so large, they are called giant woolly flying squirrels. They're found in Pakistan, and they have the ability to leap across a canyon and glide 500 feet to the other side of the canyon, the longest stretch of any flying squirrel by far. There are other relatives in Australia, uh, marsupials called sugar gliders, that have the exact same structure and ability to glide from one spot to another. But by far, the master gliders are these guys. These are found in the rainforests of Southeast Asia. They are a very strange animal with no other relatives on the planet, completely unique and isolated. They, we know virtually nothing about them because they are always at, one, uh, at, at such a high elevation in the trees that they're virtually impossible to study. And if you climbed up the tree, they just glide to the next tree and escape you very easily. Unlike the flying squirrel, which has the connection between the front and hind limbs, their flap actually continues all the way up to their neck and goes all the way out to their tail so that when they're moving along a tree trunk, they're actually extremely ungainly because they have this huge flapping uh, skin that just trails around where they, and gets in their way and all that kind of stuff. When they leap off, however, they spread their arms, spread their legs, spread their tail, and spread it into a three-foot-across gliding membrane that makes them the most expert gliders in the animal world. They can glide hundreds of feet through a jungle forest, swerving around trees as they go, exactly ending up wherever they wanted to go in the rainforest uh, jungle, and by far are the master gliders in the animal kingdom. But we're still talking about gliders here. We haven't gotten to that one-fourth of the animal creation that actually has powered flight. These guys are all bats. Now, bats are divided into two main groups. The large bats are the ones that are called flying foxes or fruit bats. These guys are found mostly in tropical areas of the world and uh, desert areas of the world. They are the ones with large eyes, small ears, and usually large bodies. These guys are active during the day or in twilight. They're not as active at night, and so they need to be able to have good vision. And so they have large eyes, and they move around through the uh, jungles and whatnot looking for fruit in which they can eat. Once they find a fruit, they will eat the fruit, and then as they digest the fruit, they will fly to new spots, and actually they are the most important regenerator of rainforests because they spread seeds in their droppings wherever they go and help to regrow the forest in places that the forest would never be able to reach with its seeds. And so they're extremely crucial to any kind of uh, rainforest area. 
And so you, this is the first group of bats, the ones that are the, the, the vegetarians, the plant, the fruit, uh, the nectar drinkers, and that sort of thing. There are other kinds of bats that drink nectar in desert areas and actually are pollinators of trees and, and keep them uh, going as a species because without the bats pollinating some of these desert plants, they would not continue to exist. Some of the agaves and whatnot would not be continuing as species if it wasn't for the bats pollinating them and keeping them going. The flowers are actually designed for bat pollination. The second group of bats are the small ones. These are the insect feeders, the meat eaters, the ones that actually are going out and hunting for their own prey. These guys are found throughout the temperate areas of the world, uh, and those are the ones we have in North America almost exclusively. These guys are small. They have very large ears compared to the other ones. They have very small eyes compared to the other bats. They are not at all blind. That is a myth of, uh, of the Dracula stories and whatnot. They can see perfectly well, but that is not their primary method of getting around. Their primary method of finding their way through the dark is with a system that we call sonar, echolocation. They will send out massively loud pulses of sound through their mouth. Often they have very elaborate leaf noses that help to channel it in any given direction. And they send out these huge, huge pulses of sound out that will then bounce off the various things and return to them. Their huge ears then collect the sound, and using these sound waves, they instantaneously put together this mental map of all that is around them. And so they have then an instant update of all that is going on around them. This way they can avoid other bats. This is the way they can avoid trees, cliffs, cave walls, stalactites, you, everything around them while they're homing in on that tiny little flying insect that is evading them all the time and they're homing in on that thing. And so in this process then they're flying, hunting for their own prey, sending out their sound waves. Now, the thing about bat sound waves is it is extremely loud. Now, if it is beyond the level of our hearing, if we could hear the sounds that these guys produce, it would in fact be so loud that it would deafen us. And so it's a very fortunate thing that we can't hear them. Now, there is a minor problem though. These bats can hear the sounds that they make and it would deafen themselves if they were allowed to be uh, hearing the noises that they're producing. But they have to be able to hear the returning sound waves. So we have this, this very difficult situation for the bats. They solve this by having a valve inside their ears that they can actually turn off, close down their hearing when they're making their sound wave pulse, and then open it back up when they're having the return sound wave pulse from previous sound waves come back and, and enter their ear. And so they turn off their hearing every time they make a pulse and open it up in between so they can receive the returning echoing sound waves. They can make this on and off, turn on and off their hearing 200 times per second. The radar guns that we build for uh, underwater use and for the uh, speed guns that we use on the highways are pieces of junk compared to the level of sophistication that these guys have built into their bodies. When we see a radar gun built, uh, that is being used by a police officer, don't we automatically assume that somebody built that radar gun? When we look at a BATS, far, far, far more complicated, far more sophisticated echolocation system, aren't we going to automatically assume that somebody built that echolocation system? These BATS use it constantly. A colony of BATS in Borneo, there's eight different species in one giant cave. There's millions of individuals. They're all flying around together, each one putting out a different type of sonar, and nobody is running into anybody. How, we, how they can do that, we don't have a clue. These guys are 
absolutely bene- uh, crucially beneficial to us because these guys wipe out insect pests wherever they find them. These guys are after the mosquitoes and gnats and all the little creatures that bother us at night. <clears throat> they are extremely, extremely useful for that. These guys in Texas, a colony of bats in Texas every night flies out and devours 200 tons of insects. And most of these are crop pests that would be eating our food if they weren't being eaten by these bats. These bats are providing these services free of charge and doing it without any uh, help on our part. And all they need is to be left alone and protected from uh, human interference to do this job for us because they are out there as our best allies in getting rid of the insect pests. They do not fly into your hair. They do not suck blood. They are not blind. All the myths you have heard are totally nonsense based upon stories created hundreds of years ago. And they are very cute. And if you don't believe that, check this guy out. (laughs) This is a fruit bat in Australia where they have a rehab place where when bats get into trouble, sometimes they have to be taken care of. And every day these baby bats are wrapped in swaddling clothes and given their bottle and taken care of until the time they can be released and to live out on their life in the wild. Squid are relatives of the octopus. They have the same basic structural design, and they have the same way of uh, moving around with jet propulsion. They have a rippling fin around their body that allows them to coordinate which direction they're going and and steer around very easily. They have ten tentacles instead of the eight that octopus have. They're also very stiff, and so they're a flat shape that uh, octopus can bend themselves into all sorts of different shapes and forms. So these guys are very much locked into the shape that they're built. These guys communicate in the same way and have the same ability to change their colors as octopus, like we talked about this morning. But they do it even faster, and they do it with even more sophistication. They can change their color and shape it instantaneously, and it's an incredible sight to see as they're displaying to hundreds of other uh, squid as they travel around in herds and formations in the ocean because they're communicating to each other with patterns and light. But the most sophisticated communicator using patterns and light are the cuttlefish. These guys can be a foot long. Some of them are actually down to one inch. They're so tiny. They are, again, relatives of squids and octopus, but they have taken the communication with uh, visual to its ultimate extreme. These guys can actually carry waves of light and darkness across their body, forward or backward, pulsing in different waves and and colors and different kinds like that. They can change their color at a moment's notice, depending on their mood, depending on their feelings, depending on what they're trying to communicate to their fellow cuttlefish. It is an extremely sophisticated way of communicating that we we can barely scratch the surface of what they're doing when they're talking to each other. They even have the ability to have one side of their body showing a certain color pattern and the other side of their body showing another color pattern. And so, in fact, they're able to carry on two different conversations at once to two different cuttlefish in two different directions. And this allows them to do something that most people don't have the ability to do, and that is have two conversations going instantaneously in two different directions. Here, uh, and so we have these guys with these unbelievable patterns, unbelievable shapes and colors and, and different ways that these guys express themselves. And here's one, like I said, the one in the back is being said one thing, the one in the foreground is being said another thing, and so here they are talking to two creatures at once. 
When you play a tape of a, a video of a cuttlefish um, doing whatever it's doing, you play it to a live one, instantaneously the live one will react to it and respond to the videotape because it sees uh, something being said by the subtle cuttlefish that he wants to respond to. Wood frogs are found throughout the eastern part of North America and across Canada all the way up to Alaska. These guys are very common, and I find them all the time when I'm back out east. But um, there is something very special about these very common creatures. They live, like I said, in very cold regions. Now, amphibians don't normally live in cold areas because it's a very uh, hard thing for a cold-blooded animal like this to survive when it gets icy and cold. And so these guys are, you know, amphibians are not usually found in Arctic areas. But these guys are. These guys are found where it gets absolutely freezing, uh, rock-solid cold in the middle of the winter. So now how do these guys survive without freezing? Well, the answer is that they don't. They freeze solid in the winter. They become a solid block of ice underground as they bury themselves in the mud. They turn into an ice cube and spend the entire winter that way with no respiration and no uh, movement of anything in their body and no movement of any liquid. It's all frozen solid. And come spring, when the ground around them begins to thaw out, the time will come when they get to the point where they warm up and their ice cube of body thaws out. And within a few hours, they begin hopping around and acting as if nothing ever happened. And they go about their business without any change at all. And that is the uh, uh, process in which they can survive ice-cold Arctic conditions. How they can freeze solid without any kind of functionality in their body and resume the normal operations is a big mystery, and nobody really knows the answer to that, how these creatures can do what none of the other amphibians can do. The I.I. Now, in, off the coast of Madagascar is the, uh, uh, off the coast of Africa is the large island of Madagascar. On Madagascar are found many unique forms of life, including the family of monkeys called lemurs. These guys are found in a large variety of forms and shapes. This one is uh, one of the uh, larger forms. And it, there's, they can be from very small up to very large, about three feet tall. But there is one form of lemur that is absolutely the most unique, specialized, unusual creature that you could ever possibly imagine, and that is the eye-eye. This lemur is unlike any of his relatives. He's, like un, he's not like anything that is found on that island in any shape or form. These guys are active at night. They're very nocturnal, and they crawl around the tree trunks looking for grubs inside the bark of trees. They actually eat the same type of thing that a woodpecker would normally eat, but, uh, but they are after the same type of food. So they crawl along at night with their enormously large ears, and they tap on the wood as they are going with their long fingers. As they are tapping away, they listen with their hearing, with their extremely large ears against the wood, listening for any little noise inside, the movement of some grub underneath the uh, surface of the bark. Once they hear something moving, they know they need to home in and go after it. At that point, then, they will need to get into the wood and extract the insect grub. Now, a woodpecker does that by banging his head against the wood, as we discussed earlier this morning. These guys can't bang their heads against a wood. It wouldn't do any good. So they instead have these enormously large chisel teeth with which they are able to eat away at the wood, bite the wood, and rip away the surface of the wood till they get a hole, till they break through to the inner chamber where the grub is, is, is uh, hiding. But at that point, they still have to get it out. And so they have this enormously long, thin finger on their forefeet that is only on their front two feet. It's not on their hind legs. And this one will reach in to the hole. It will hook on to the grub, and it will yank out whatever it can hook onto and pull it into its mouth where you can devour it. 
In this way, they're able to extract the insect grubs from their, uh, from their homes, and this allows them to get all the food that they need. Now, you have all these specializations in this creature. Enormously powerful hearing, strong chisel teeth, long finger that allows them to reach in. Now, all of these things are necessary for this eye-eye to collect food. None of the other lemurs have these specializations, and there's no other lemur that we can look to that say, okay, this evolved into this, and this evolved into this, and that sort of thing. They are totally unique. But there's a big problem when you are needing to eat to survive, and you can't survive, you can't eat without these specializations. How did these specializations add on over millions of years, bit by bit, as the evolutionary theory states that one comes along and another a few thousand years later, another development comes along, and soon you have this final product that is the lemur. And so you have this eye-eye with all these different wonderful adaptations that are supposed to evolve over millions of years. But it's not possible for a creature to not get food and still be able to survive for millions of years. And so we have a big problem here that these creatures had to have all these sophisticated adaptations from day one or they're not going to be able to get the food that they need. And so these little creatures going about their business in the dark of the Madagascar at night are, again, a living testimony of God's creative power because, again, we have far too much sophistication and complexity to ever account for it, anything besides God's power. If we ever needed any more proof that animals were not put on this planet solely to serve mankind, we need look no farther than the deep-sea creatures found in the bottoms of our oceans. Most of these creatures not only have not had anything beneficial to do for mankind, they've been completely unknown by mankind until very recently. These creatures have been going about their business for thousands of years without interference, without any kind of benefit to us. This one is called a (coughs) anglerfish. This one is swimming down at the bottom of the ocean, and at the very tip of its uh, fishing lure, that will be glowing in the water and and serve as a magnet to all the little creatures who see that glowing thing and think it's maybe food or something. And they go swimming toward this lure, and when they get close enough to the mouth, they get gulped down. When you are down at the bottom of the ocean, there's not a whole lot of life available to feed on. It's very thin and sparse and few, few and far between. And so you got to find your food when you can and catch it and hang on to it. And so this creature, the deep sea swallower, solves that by having this enormously large mouth. They're also called pelican eel because of this enormous mouth. And they come across food and they are going to open up their mouth and swallow it, even if it's bigger than their stomach can hold. If it is too big for their stomach to hold, their stomach will actually protrude from their belly, stick out from the side of their belly, and sit there until the time comes when they've been able to digest it enough that they're able to um, pull their stomach back in and they can go back to normal operations. They are like a camel storing food inside their belly. When they come across it, they're going to swallow it and hold on to it for dear life. This critter is a relative of the squids that we were looking at it, uh, looking at earlier. This one's called a vampire squid because of its red color. Um, the red color is a help in camouflage because in the deep sea waters there are uh, different wavelengths of light that actually if you're red you're going to be almost invisible just like if you were a green lizard on a green leaf you're going to be able to blend in and just be almost invisible. These guys have extremely unusual uh, traits of a squid. They have this hood that connects all of their arms, unlike most squid, which have completely uh, separate arms. And they have hooks on their, tentacle, uh, on their tentacles instead of suckers, with which they are able to grab onto their prey and hang on tightly so that it, won't, it can't get a, escape. 
And so we have this enormously unusual creature going about his business down there at the bottom of the sea. Now, as we look at all these deep-sea creatures, now we're fascinated by all these weird shapes and forms and things that are going about at the bottom of the ocean that are just too strange to believe. We get down to the very bottom, and you get past the point where sunlight can reach. Now, all life on Earth, so we thought, was dependent upon sunlight to survive. Sunlight shines upon the green leaves of plants. Photosynthesis takes place. Energy is produced by the plants. And then all life forms then follow from that, either vegetarian animals eating the plants or predatory animals eating the animals who have eaten on the plants. It's all part of the same cycle. And so all the nutrient energy is coming from these plant, from the sun, in this very much a very complicated system that is the basis of all life on Earth. But down at the bottom of the ocean, there is no sunlight. And therefore, we said there could not be any life forms on the bottom of the ocean. But we, in fact, have found far more than we ever dreamed possible. We have found these deep-sea chimneys that are spewing out these superheated gases from the molten core of the Earth that are just all these toxic uh, soup of, of chemicals that we would just find completely caustic to anything that we can deal with. But we find them to be loaded with life all around these, uh, these vents. Limpets, tube worms, fish, crabs, snails, all of these creatures are found in abundance around these chimneys that are spewing out these, these uh, chemicals. And we look at these things. We found them in the 70s. We never knew they existed before then. And we began studying, and we take trips down there to the bottom of the ocean, and we look around, and we find new species every time we go down. It's in an unending source of new life that we're finding. And we go, how in the world can these creatures survive? Because they are not getting any of their nourishment from sunlight. And so, in fact, we find out that they are based upon a completely different system of energy called chemosynthesis instead of photosynthesis. And in fact, they are getting their nutrients from the chemicals being spewed out of these vents. It is a completely different way of absorbing energy and processing energy. And it was said to be impossible before these creatures were found. Now we find them and say that evolution had to design two different ways of, of life existing on this planet, the normal photosynthesis way and this chemosynthesis way, two radically different ways that evolution had to come up with this solution to acquiring energy. And it strains credulity past the breaking point to believe that this could all have been put together by evolution. There is a worm found down there, three inches long, that lives with its foot, its base, against these smoking hot chimneys. And so its body is actually in the temperature range of 140, 150, 175 degrees because it is so, so hot. Its head, however, sticks three inches out and is actually past the point where the superheated water can heat up the water. There is such a, a, a sharp contrast between the ice-cold water of the deep sea and the boiling hot water of the vents that they are actually protruding their head to the point where it is in the freezing cold water, 33 degrees. And so you have in one creature a temperature range of about 140 degrees from its head to its base. It is the largest temperature extreme of any creature found on the planet that is able to survive and hold on to uh, life while being exposed to such enormously different conditions. And it just goes to show how life can live in some of the most extreme, amazing places ever found on this planet. As we look at the various creatures of the deep ocean, we find some of the most amazing, some of the most intriguing creatures ever found on Earth. And we find that they don't obey the rules of evolution any more than the land creatures do in the ways that they have found to survive and exist and make do in a very hostile environment. This is a very famous group of beetles because of creationists. The bombardier beetles are 
a specialized group of beetles that have the ability to play with chemistry. These guys inside their bodies have vats of chemicals. They are kept very separate, and, um, and uh, each one is inert. Chemicals are kept here, chemicals are kept here. If they are attacked by something like a shrew or a toad who wants to eat them, they will then go into action. The chemicals are then mixed in this uh, explosion chamber with oxygen. When those three substances are put together, this enormously powerful chain reaction takes place, and it happens in such a quick amount of time that we can't even comprehend how fast it happens. Steam is produced. The oxygen um, is turned to steam, and the these two chemicals, which were inert before, combined now are a toxic soup of superheated chemicals which spew out the back end of the beetle into the face of whatever is attacking him. In this way, a toad gets a mouthful of chemicals and decides he would rather find some food elsewhere. And he will then uh, get away and try and escape from this extremely annoying beetle that sprayed him in the face. When we look at these beetles and we look at the system that is built into these creatures, if you didn't have the explosion chamber to mix these chemicals, none of this chemical would make any difference. If you took away one of the two chemicals, the explosion chamber and the other chemical would be totally irrelevant. It wouldn't be able to function. This system is what is called irreducibly complex system, where you take away one part of a system and the rest of the system is completely non-functional. In this way, we have a system where it could not evolve over millions of years because there is no point to have any parts of this until all of it is put together. And so if you have piece by piece being put together over millions of years, you are going to get to a place where that species is going to go extinct long before all the parts are put together correctly to get everything in its exact uh, right setup. And so this, form of, this, this concept of irreducible complexity is a death blow to evolution because there is no way that evolution can explain how any creature can have all the parts that it needs to survive without having built it up over millions of years. Creationists can tell you that it all happened when God said so, and it put it all together in one form and just what he needs in exactly the way that it's put together, and that's perfectly designed for what it wants. Now, land snakes are found throughout all the hot areas of the world, both tropical, desert, um, everywhere there's uh, enough warmth to keep these guys going, you're going to find land snakes. This particular one I found on a road in the uh, uh, back east. This is normally uh, found in bushes and stuff, and so they rely on their green color for camouflage. And so when he gets caught in the open, he doesn't know what to do. And so he just held still and let me take every picture I possibly could from two inches away. Never moved for 10 minutes because he knew he was camouflaged and he wasn't, he wasn't being seen. And so I was, uh, I was just some weird creature moving around him, but he was not going to move because that would, that would give away his position. And so I finally, when the time came, I had to actually bump him to get him to crawl off the road because he wasn't moving at all. But anyway, land snakes are found in all the same formats. You have all the same thing with no limbs, of course, covered with scales. But uh, they can be very large and slow or very small and fast. They all have the same basic design of their body scales, however. They're covered in these hard plates that protect them. On their belly, they have wide, uh, flat scales overlapping that uh, allow them to hook onto whatever surface they're on and in a rippling me method, hook on and pull themselves forward. And this allows them to have forward momentum. They don't have any legs to move, so this is how they move. They pull themselves forward very quickly in many cases and scuttle around wherever they need to. 
They can even climb up nearly vertical surfaces. Here's one that I found crawling up a wet rock face where water was actually dripping down on top of him, and he was crawling up this rock face without any problem. Uh, Nearly, It was an 80-degree slope that he was going up, without, and it was wet, and he was having no problem whatsoever crawling up this rock face. And so it is a very well-built system that allows them to hang on and crawl to wherever they need to go. Now, like I said, these are all the land snakes that have these uh, belly scales in this way and have this ability to move along. Now, there are relatives of land snakes in the sea, not too many, but there are a few in the oceans of the world. It's called sea snakes. And these guys have to have a completely different body structure in order to uh, function. Their belly scales are virtually non-existent because they don't crawl around on the bottom of the ocean, and so they don't need to have this uh, ability to hook onto stuff and move forward. They are, in fact, swimmers, and so they instead have a flattened tail that allows them to actually act like a paddle and scull their way through the water's surface and get them uh, to wherever they need to go very quickly. And so they spend all their time in the deep oceans, and if they brought them up onto land, they are actually very, very um, uh, out of whack, and they don't know what they're doing, and they have a very hard time moving at all. Now, back to land snakes. Land snakes, uh, one of their key systems that they're able to exist is their smelling ability. And so they have, unlike us, a tongue with which they smell. They don't smell through their nose, they smell with their tongue. And so they have this tongue that collects scent particles, they pull it into their mouth, and on the roof of their mouth they have this organ that collects the scent particles, and that's how they're able to smell. This is very important for snakes because that's how they track their prey. It's especially important for poisonous snakes like this copperhead because they will bite their prey, inject their venom, and then immediately release their prey. They don't want to be in a fight with this creature. They don't want to have their mouth injured by a mouse or or whatnot. They want to let it go as quickly as possible and then back away so that the venom can do its work. The creature will run off and quickly die from the venom inside its body. And at that point, the snake will then begin to track its uh, scent particles on the ground, follow it around wherever it needs to go, and get to where the point comes where it can find the dead body of of the creature it has bitten and then uh, eat it without any risk of harm to itself. Now, this is all for the land snakes and especially the poisonous snakes who do it this way. Now, the sea snakes, if they were to do it this way, they are going to lose the prey that they bite and release because there's a lot of competition down there. If they release anything, it's going to be eaten by somebody else. And also, if they uh, bite a fish, which is their main source of food, and they let it go, that fish is going to swim to the point where they can't follow it. The water currents are shifting. They can't get to the, uh, they can't track it through the water. And so they need to have some way to get this fish and kill it very quickly in order to have, uh, a meal. And so <clears throat> sea snakes have the most potent venom in the snake world, more so than cobras, more so than rattlesnake, more so than any uh, taipan or anything you can possibly name. These guys have more potent venom drop for drop than any snake in the world. And so they bite their prey, inject their venom, and almost instantaneously the fish is dead. And then they're able to eat it without any damage to themselves, and it's able to function in that way and get them in the meal that they need. And so we have this uh, sea snake. Uh, the most uh, potent venom going, but they're actually very, very timid. These are actually, this species right here is found in the Philippines, and they're being wiped out by divers who swim down, gather them up by the handful, bring them up and kill them for exotic leathers and other nonsense like that. They will actually not defend themselves in the, against people. And so they're actually more timid than they should be for their own good. Now, nudibranchs, one of the most interesting forms of life found on this planet as far as I'm concerned. This is not a nudibranch. (laughs) This is, of course, a male peacock with his extremely showy finery and tail uh, with plumes that uh, is famous around the world over for this exotic colors and forms. Why in the world are they so colorful? 
The female is not colorful. It's only the male. He sets up his, uh, his plume. He displays for the female, and the female ignores him. So in that case, very much like uh, human species. But in these guys, they are very serious about it, and they will do it for hours on end, doing their beautiful, extravagant display of colors and forms. Why are they so extravagant? Evolutionary theory tells us it is because the female choosing the male will choose the most exotic, the most extravagant, the most beautiful male. Over the, His genes will be passed on. The next generation will do the same. Over millions of years, it'll become more extreme and more colorful and more elaborate until you finally have this extreme show of this male peacock, and that has been chosen by the female over millions of years. This is said to apply to peacocks, pheasants, grouse, birds of paradise, and chickens. All these groups have extremely showy males, dull females, and have this finery which serves no purpose whatsoever other than showing off. And so this is a very much a unique function of these birds that allows them to uh, be so bright and colorful and show off for no reason other than showing off. So if this is true, then we would think that it would be true in other animals as well, where there is a very showy type of creature that is very extravagant, very different amongst the different species. So let's look at some other creatures. Back to the nudibranchs. Again, though, this is not a nudibranch. This is a slug found in Asia. It is a relative of our garden slugs that we find in our yards and, and uh, forests. And all of the slugs that we're familiar with on land have relatives in the ocean called sea slugs. Sea slugs are the nudibranchs. These guys are found throughout the world's oceans in an unbelievable amount of diversity of form and color and shape and size. These guys are found in unending diversity. I could do nothing but, sh but show pictures of nudibranchs all day and never show you two that looked alike. Um, I was just looking at a book last week, which are a book of, uh, you know, an inch thick, small pictures of nudibranchs just on the east coast of the Pacific, along our coast here of California and Washington and Alaska. And that's just one small segment of this world's oceans, and they're just unbelievably diverse. You can see here on the right are his gills, on the left here are his antenna. They are called nudibranch because of these gills which protrude from their body, because na uh, nudibranch means naked gill. And so all of these colors and forms, all of these uh, elaborate, elaborate uh, paraphernalia these guys have on their backs are unbelievably colorful, unbelievably beautiful. Some of these guys are very sedentary. They don't move around much. They don't get, aren't very active. Some of them crawl around the reefs and look for whatever they need to find. Some of them, like this one, actually have the ability to pick themselves up and move their body and swim through the water with undulating, uh, undulating uh, ripples to their body. Some of them are vegetarians, like this one. He will eat the plant material, and he actually takes the green cells from the food that he is eating. He transfers it into his body, and he adopts the color of the plant that he is eating, thereby providing perfect camouflage because he just sits in his food and is exactly the same color, and so nobody can see him. Others are scavengers that crawl around and find whatever they can to uh, eat on the reefs and on the shorelines. Some of them are active predators that actually go out searching for anemones, for uh, flatworms, for whatever they can find to eat, and will actually, uh, in that way, are, are carnivorous attackers of other creatures. So you have a great deal of diversity in behavior as well as in diversity of color and form. This guy is found in the free-floating oceans of the world. He just sits around on the surface wherever the water takes him, out in the deep ocean. 
He comes across a jellyfish. That is his meal. He will begin to eat the stinging tentacles of a jellyfish. A stinging tentacle of a jellyfish, if you touch it, is going to burn your hand. It's going to be very dangerous. These guys munch on it with their mouth, and it doesn't discharge any stinging cells. Instead, the stinging cells that they are eating actually travel into their body and end up in these tentacles, these frilly tentacles in their body. And then if something comes along and attacks this nudibranch, then those stinging cells will discharge and defend the nudibranch that ate them. And so these nudibranchs get not only a meal, but a defense with the jellyfish that they come across in the deep oceans. It's a very specialized way of doing it. So now let's look at this idea of whether or not these uh, creatures are being chosen for their diversity based on the females choosing the males and whatnot over millions of years, because there is nothing but diversity here, and there's nothing but color and shapes and forms, and it's not just a simple color scheme which defends itself by saying, leave me alone, because that would work with one kind of color scheme that all of them could have, and it would be good enough, but they have unending different colors and shapes. So it has to be right that the female is choosing the male. Well, there's two problems with that theory. <clears throat> the first problem is that all of these guys are both male and female. Each individual is actually both. And so whenever one critter comes across another of its own species, they're pretty much good to go. So now the second problem, however, is far more uh, problematic. Nudibranchs are totally, 100%, utterly blind. They cannot see themselves. They cannot see each other. They cannot see anything around them in the oceans. They have no idea how beautiful they are. They have no idea what color they are. They are absolutely, totally unaware of any of, this, uh, of the colors and forms and shapes that they are existing as. And therefore, they have no ability to choose based on what another one looks like. And so we have this group of unendingly diverse creatures showing this beautiful artistic expression of God's miracle working hand because there's no other explanation that makes any sense except that God loves colors and shapes and forms and diversity. And if he didn't love so, so much diversity, he wouldn't have created on this planet, because there's no reason for any of these things to be this colorful, except as a living testament to God's love of beauty. The last one we're going to be talking about are the butterflies and moths. Now, of course, everybody knows about butterflies and moths. These guys are everywhere. Wherever you're going to go into the backyard or in your forest and your mountain, whatever you're going to go, you're going to find these guys flying around your lights, back in your, flying around your flowers, whatever. Butterflies are usually very colorful, usually very bright and showy. They're active during the day, but not always. Moths are usually drab and usually plain colored and active at night, but not always. And so you have a lot of crossover, a lot of ones that are not actually uh, fit the mold and fit the pattern that uh, we normally think of as distinct between butterflies and moths. Some of them are actually very showy. Some of the moths are very elaborate in their patterns and colors. Here is a moth, believe it or not, that, sh that is active during the day and shows how beautiful these guys can actually be. Here is another moth, a very large moth found in the deserts up in Oregon that shows how uh, personable and interesting these guys can be once they, uh, you see them up close. Here is a butterfly that actually has many moth traits in its body and is actually kind of a crossover toward the moth size. These are called skippers and have a lot of the traits that uh, moths have. And so there's no really hard and fast rule where you can identify moths or butterflies just by looking at them unless you know what you're doing. Here is one that is a, a moth, very active at night, very large, as you can see, compared to my hand, and uh, is a, much, uh, a very showy species showing how beautiful the moths can be. Now, on the wings of all butterflies and moths, their wings are actually transparently clear membranes that actually have no color whatsoever to them. 
On their wings, however, they have all these individual scales, and you can see some of these little specks of color. And, and if you blew up this wing even further, you would see every single bit of color on these wings are scales overlapped upon themselves, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of scales that are actually each scale a spot of color. And when you put them all together, it becomes this enormously complicated and enormously uh, intricate pattern and colors and shapes that we see in front of us. Now, all of these guys now start out the same way, end up the same way, transform the same way. And so that's, that's what we're going to look at right now as we finish up. These guys all will find a place where they will lay their eggs. The females will lay their eggs on a given plant, and that is where the process begins. The egg is laid there. It comes out. The, ha the caterpillar breaks out of its shell. It then begins to move about looking for whatever food he can find because it's usually been laid right by its host plant. At that point, these caterpillars are living, eating machines. That is their sole function. That's their sole purpose in life. That's all they want to do is eat and eat and eat. They have sucker feet and clawed feet with which they can hold on to the plant material very tightly so they don't get knocked off. This allows them to get a good grip on stuff. They have tiny eyes that can barely see anything in front of them. They don't have any antenna to register anything uh, in front of them because they're just very insular and just what is right in front of their nose is all they care about. Whatever plant they're eating is the only thing that matters. They are a long digestive gut. Their food is put through shredding mouth parts that chops up the plant material and turns it into this uh, slurry that they eat down and their whole body is designed to digest food as quickly as possible, to put on weight as quickly as possible, and get big as quickly as possible. That's their entire function in life. And so they go through this. They're eating constantly everything they can find until they get to the point where the time has come for them to transform and change into the adult form. And that's where the miracle begins to take place. A difference in butterflies and moths now becomes very apparent. Butterflies will actually withdraw inside their outer skin their outer skin will harden and form a protective case called a chrysalis. This will protect them in this transformation process. Moths have the ability to spin silk, and they will actually wrap themselves up in silk in a, uh, a long bundle, and this will allow them to be protected inside this cocoon until they are finished transforming. Now, chrysalis or cocoon makes no difference. They will then, from this point forward, uh, be transforming for several weeks or, or months in this uh, shell, in this protection. If you broke them open at this point, you would find nothing but liquid soup because every structure in their body breaks down to a goo, a liquid that is absolutely undifferentiated in any way. It breaks down to just nothing. This includes their brain. This includes every part of their body. There is nothing left inside this chrysalis except for liquid soup. At that point, it will then rebuild its body in a completely new form and be ready to transform and break out of its shell in a completely new way than it came into the shell. When the time comes and they've fully developed, they will break out, their wings will be all crumpled up against their body. Over the next few hours, they will expand and harden their wings. At that point, then, they will be ready to take off and fly and begin their adult life. And from this point forward, everything has changed and nothing is the same as it was before. Now they have six long, delicate legs with which they can perch upon flowers and get themselves in exactly the right position to drink the nectar. They have long, tube tongues, unlike the shredding, chewing mouth parts of the caterpillar, which with they can stick into a flower and drink the nectar and suck it out like a tube. They have long antennae, 
that with which they can sense the world around them and get long-range messages over the air currents. They have enormously complex compound eyes with which they are able to see very long distances around them and able to see very strongly. And so all of these things are totally different than the ones before. Obviously, they have wings. They now have this ability to fly, which their caterpillars never had whatsoever. Their body is now no longer designed to digest plant material, but it's designed to drink nectar, which is a great source of energy. It'll never make them any bigger, but it's a great source of energy to get them going over the next few weeks. There is no aspect of the adult form which is the same as the caterpillar form. It is 100% different. There is nothing the same. It has totally been changed in this creative act of transformation between the caterpillar form and the adult form. And remember, there is no brain inside of that chrysalis or cocoon with which it coordinate, coordination of this process has taken place. We have no idea how this process takes place. We can analyze the steps, but we have no idea what the controlling mechanism is because there is no brain in there to do any of this and figure out, okay, this needs to go here and this needs to go here and this needs to be formed into that. It is a total mystery how this miracle can take place. These guys are found throughout the world, in your backyard, wherever you want to go, you can see the miracle creation of God's power. They are a living testament of God's creative act, and they can be shown wherever you want to go, you have this wonderful transformation miracle displayed by God's creatures. <clears throat> That's our whirlwind tour of the animal creation, as we have gone through a few of these various different groups of animals and seen some of the ways in which they have been built by God to be the exact thing they need to be in that particular ecosystem. As we have gone through this presentation, can we answer the question, does the blind watchmaker concept account for what we have seen? Or does it have to be a creative act that has made everything around us that we have seen here today and many more? The hard part of this presentation was cutting it down to the bare minimum to fit into a presentation this small. I could have made 20 presentations of this length and not repeated myself. And I could have started over with the plant world and done the same thing because there is unending proof of God's creative act in these intricacies and creations of all around us. As we finish up here, I'm going to read from Job 12, verses 7 to 10. But ask now the beasts, and they shall teach thee, and the fowls of the air, and they shall tell thee, or speak to the earth, and it shall teach thee. And the fishes of the sea shall declare unto thee, Who knoweth not in all these that the hand of the Lord hath wrought this, in whose hand is the soul of every living thing and the breath of all mankind? As we finish up here, I'm going to make a couple announcements, and uh, I'm going to let these pictures run as we go, and then we will break for just a few minutes. We're already at 5.30. We got a little later start than we wanted to, but uh, we're going to finish up uh, this and then go directly into the next one after a, a short break. And um, this will, next meeting will be done at sundown. That, one is, that is guaranteed. And then questions and answers will be taken up because I'm sure people have many questions about what I'm talking about and even more so after the next one. And so we're going to go into that. But first I wanted to make a couple uh, uh, announcements before we uh, break up. First of all, um, I have been presenting this now for the last year as I've traveled around the country with my father. Uh, I've been doing it in churches across the nation, and uh, I've been doing this now, like I said, since last January. Um, it has been a test. It has been an experiment to see if this would be well-received, if this would be something that people are interested in. And so far, the uh, result has been very uh, uh, positive. There's been very good reception. And so at this point, we're going to be going forward with this as a regular thing. 
and as a something that I will continue to put together presentations of this sort and showing the different ways that animals uh, testify to creation in various different ways as, uh, as we've seen here and many more. As part of that, um, I have uh, this last two years um, been uh, very much involved with one of your own. Um, for the last several years, you have been uh, sheltering here a uh, member who has been uh, very special to me, and uh, she has been uh, coming here regularly, and she will be coming here for a few more weeks, and then she will not be coming here any longer. In three weeks, um, I will be marrying Delise Horner, and I would like her to uh, be seen here at this point so that she knows, is known by all of you. She is very much going to be part of my ministry from this point forward. And together we are going to go forward and do this as a uh, full-time thing if, if we can continue to get the funds to make this work. Um, she will be my professional photographer. I will be the naturalist. And together we'll make these uh, things as much as we can. Uh, we will be traveling for uh, much of the year like we have, I have been um, myself up to this point, And she will be joining me. Um, and together we are put together what we're calling our ministry at this point is Ask the Animals Productions. And based on this uh, text in Job that we just read, Ask the Animals. And so uh, we will be uh, uh, doing this in churches like this. I will be doing it for adults. She is a school teacher. She will be doing it for children. And so together we'll try and cover every group we can. And uh, she has uh, uh, put together her own presentation, and she'll be doing it for the kids, and I'll be continuing to do this one for the adults. Now, we have also put this together into DVD uh, format. Everything that you've seen here, both parts one and parts two, are available in a DVD. I had an earlier version that I did last year that uh, I did the best I could and got it going, and it was all right. But um, in fact, I've spent all this last fall and winter redoing it, getting it really, really fine-tuned as much as I possibly could in the time allowed, and really getting it to the point where it's, I'm satisfied with it to, to sell it from this point forward. We have the two versions, both for adults and for kids. And so this is what we're going to be marketing for our, uh, as, as part of our presentations for people to share with their friends and their children and various things like that. This will be one of the ways in which we will actually support ourselves because we will be producing this ourselves and using the money to pay for minor things like gas and car parts and things like that because uh, that's the way we'll determine how much and how long we'll be able to do this at this point. Um, if anyone has interest in, in supporting this ministry, the best way to do so is to buy those DVDs and to spread them around, give them as gifts, you know, that sort of thing. Um, if anyone wants to give a donation to this, um, that is fine. We're not going to be taking up any offering or anything like that. But if you, anyone feels impressed that they want to support this, uh, talk to her or myself sometime today, and we can be happy to accept your donation at this point to, to carry forward with this. And like I said, this will not be used for fun and games. This will be used for uh, survival at this point because we are a young married couple trying to survive like every young married couple is trying to survive. And so uh, also... If anyone has any interest in our speaking at your church, at your school, anything like that, if you know someone who would like to have us, um, contact us because we are looking for invitations at this point to work into our schedule and our routine. And so the best way to do that is to go to our website and where you can contact. It has our uh, snail mail address, our, our email address uh, for, for, for this sort of thing. And so that will be the way that you can contact us if you're interested in having us uh, uh, come to your place. Our website is www.ask hyphen the hyphen animals dot com ask the animals with hyphens in between the three words 
And so that is the uh, new endeavor that we are trying to uh, see if it will survive and prosper. And we'll go forward in faith at this point to see what happens from this point forward. So this is kind of in many ways, the official launching of this ministry today. I've kind of saved it up for this point because I knew I'd be speaking here, and I wanted to make this kind of the official notification for people, those who are listening to this on Audioverse as well. You know, wherever you happen to be, we are welcome to hear from you because we would like to have this carried around as much as possible. And so this is kind of the... We're letting people know at this from this point forward. Now, I'm going to end up at this point, and we will take a break. Um, remember, now the last meeting will start uh, very quickly. We're going to start within five to ten minutes because we don't want it to go over, over sundown. And then uh, we will get going. At the end of the next meeting, we will have the uh, free gift that I told you about that I will be giving to everyone in attendance. And there's quite a few of you here, so I, I plan to have enough. But I will definitely be able to cover everyone. But that is uh, what I will be giving as part of the final meeting, this last one. So at this point, I will let you uh, make any final announcements you want to, and then we'll go from there.